We're about probably six weeks into our series on spiritual warfare and the lies we believe. And one of the things that I've certainly learned over time is that we are most vulnerable uh, to the enemy and to his lies when we are alone and isolated. Laying in bed at night, can't go to sleep, wheels are turning, Satan's speaking to you, filling your head with all kinds of stuff. Maybe you're behind closed doors at the office or you're riding in a car by yourself on a long trip or maybe you've decided to kind of shut yourself in for the weekend, for the night in, in your house, in your bedroom, alone. Sometimes we choose to be alone. Sometimes it's just the reality of the moment, but anytime the enemy can get us alone with our thoughts, he attacks. And if we stay alone long enough um, and allow the enemy to kind of do his dark magic on our minds, then we begin to become kind of tainted and kind of skewed in, in our perspective on our uh, circumstances, our perspective on our relationships, our perspective on God and his love for us all gets um, just a little, uh, yeah, just tainted and, and skewed. And as I said, sometimes we choose to be alone and figure life out ourselves. Why do we do that? Well, there's lots of different possible reasons why. Um, one could be that we are kind of overconfident in ourselves and our ability to make life work without anybody else's help. Sometimes we're um, maybe too ashamed to share with anybody else what our struggles are. Um, too proud to admit that we need help. Or maybe we assume that nobody cares. Or maybe history has shown us that when we've opened up and shared some things with others that they've really kind of handled it pretty poorly. And so that's just kind of shut us down. Or maybe we choose to isolate because other people are difficult. And we think, well, if I get into this relationship and I share some of my stuff with somebody, what if they share some of their junk back with me and then I got to help them figure out their life, and my life's enough of a mess by itself. I don't really need other people's burdens, right? Anything hit target with anybody out there? Yeah? Well, as with anything, as, as followers of Christ, we need to take our cues from him. You know, when he came down to earth and lived as a man, how did he go about living life and, and handling the, the enemy's lies and the things that um, that he definitely got thrown at him um, as he battled him. One thing that we need to acknowledge right off the bat is that Jesus exists in perpetual community. Right? Father, Son, Spirit um, are in perfect relationship with one another, kind of one entity, the Trinity. And so Jesus has this kind of built-in community happening all the time with him. And so you would think maybe that when he came to earth as a man, that maybe because he kind of had that intimacy in his back pocket, maybe he really wouldn't have to interact with people. You know, he could be kind of this lone ranger guy who just got his mission done by himself. Because honestly, people would probably slow him down and probably frustrate him anyways. But that's really not what he did. <laughs> Instead, he chose to live in community, first of all, in a nuclear family, 
He allowed himself to be parented. He had siblings. He had extended family, aunts, uncles, cousins. So he lived in community with them. But then he also had these 12 disciples, right? When you read about him, it says that he spoke to thousands of people sometimes. And these crowds would follow him. But he chose to live in this little platoon a lot of the time. I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. It's page 911. Mark 3. Starting in verse 13. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And so he he appointed these 12 guys that they might what? What was the first thing that he said? Even before that. Be with him. Just be with him. Not necessarily do anything. Just be with him. Now, how was that arrangement going to benefit Jesus? How was having these 12 guys with him all the time going to benefit Jesus? It's a question for you. He didn't necessarily need to have them, but maybe he did. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah. An example of community. Okay. Yeah. So it gives us an example of community. What else? How is this going to benefit Jesus, though? Do what now? Okay. Yeah. Multiply his influence in, into others that could that could go, and he can only be one place at one time, right? What's that? He desires fellowship. Okay. How do we know that? How do we know that by who he is? What's that? Yeah, yeah, he created us. Yeah, he didn't have to do that, so he must want to be with us, right? Yeah. He wanted them? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. Scripture says that he, that he wanted these disciples, yeah. The fact that he lives in a trinity... <laughs> That God designed things to be Father, Son, and Spirit tells us that the community is important to him. Okay? Good. Good thoughts, folks. This model of doing life together is seen throughout the New Testament. Whenever Jesus would send people out, he always sent them out two by two. Right? When you look in the book of Acts and you hear the name Peter, you almost always hear John. They were just kind of tag-teamed it in those early days of building the church. They were always together. When you read Paul's letters, you see that as he was out doing these missionary journeys and taking the gospel to new places that had never heard about Christ, and a lot of times, honestly, he was kind of getting the crud beat out of him along the way, he always had somebody with him. You know, it was Silas and Barnabas and Luke or Timothy. And what's amazing is that people wanted to be with him when he was getting beat around so much what was so compelling about paul that's like yeah you might get beat up in the next town 
I'm coming with you, right? That sounds good. But this continual biblical model for ministry success was in numbers. It was in community. It was in deep spiritual friendship. But not just any people will do. It's not like Paul could have just picked anybody to come with him. Because you need to pick people who understand that there's a battle going on. That there's an enemy. That there's this glory that they have that's needed. That things are at stake. And the Wizard of Oz, the movie, is is so endearing and compelling for such a long period of time. Because it has all of those elements. Right? The scarecrow, the tin man, the lion, they all understand, and Dorothy too, the, the power of the wicked witch. They understand that they are in a battle. There's a battle going on. They, they want something. They, they, they desire for things to be different. They know that it's going to take risk and courage to go and do the things that, that they want to do. Have a heart, have a brain, have courage, all those things. But they needed one another, right? Alone, they couldn't do it. But together, there was power in that. And so they made great traveling companions for Dorothy and Toto. Have you ever been on a dysfunctional team? You might be on one right now, right? Um, maybe it could be sports team or, uh, or at work, right? Um, tell me, what are the... What are the elements, what's going on when things are dysfunctional? Why are certain teams dysfunctional? Without mentioning any names, tell me what are some traits of dysfunctional teams. Brock? A lot of chiefs and not a lot of Indians. I personally am more of an Indian type. So, yeah, I get frustrated with the chiefs too. Yeah. What's that? Confusion about what? Whatever you're doing. Clarity of vision. Yes, good. Yes. Everybody pushing their own agenda. Yes. Lack of communication. Yes. Lack of trust. Good. Yes. Selfishness. Man. Richard. It's always somebody else's fault. This is the easiest question I've ever asked. You guys are like, wham, wham, wham. Yeah, dysfunction out there, huh? Man, the pain is real. Most of the time, and you guys mentioned this, I've found that the team is dysfunctional. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but, but at the core, it's just that everybody doesn't have the same agenda, right? Somebody mentioned that. So you're on a sports team, and there's some people on your team who think, well, I thought we were, like, trying to get to state this year. And so, like... If, if we're trying to do that, shouldn't we be doing this, this, and this, and this? Like, isn't that the commitment this is going to take? Well, other people are like, eh, that's just things we said when coach was around. We just really want to have fun and, yeah, if we win or lose, eh, whatever, right? And you're just like, man, that causes dysfunction, hurt feelings, right? Confusion, uh, because some people are given max effort and some people aren't. <laughs> or, you know, at work, if you're a nurse and maybe you're on this floor, this unit, and there's some nurses that are, they're just kind of, they're really just kind of punching the clock. They just kind of want their paycheck, and they're not really willing to invest much personally, while other nurses are there trying to bring quality care to the patients. 
right? And there's this clash because you got these people that are really selfish and these folks that are thinking about the team and how can we care for people. So competing agendas lead to dysfunction. And a few weeks ago, we talked about the importance of understanding the story that we're living in and the roles that we have to play. As Christians, we're caught up in this grand narrative of the Bible that's been going on for thousands of years. And we talked about the story is that continually, again and again, God breaks in to our life and he offers us a rescue and redemption from our sins. And if we take hold of that, he, he comes in and he makes us a new creation and he begins changing us and transforming us into the image of his son. He adopts us as, as a child, right? So that's kind of the plot of the story, the grand narrative that's been played out since time began. We've talked about the backdrop to the story is, is a world at war, that there is a battle going on between the spiritual forces of good and evil for the hearts and minds of every person that's ever been created, Then we talked about the role that each of us as followers of Christ have to play, and that role is to save many lives, like to partner with God to save as many people as we can from this battle, right? Are we doing life with some people who understand that story? Because people are chasing around all kinds of alternate stories, Right? A lot of us have friends, family, who they're chasing the American dream story. And it's all about, you know, work hard, get money, get stuff, right? And, and that's going to lead to happiness, escape, entertainment, pleasure. That's, that's really what they're chasing. And those folks don't make good partners on the journey because they're not living the same story that we're called to live. Instead of figuring out how do we save many lives, for them it's all about how do I become comfortable and, and, and experience pleasure and have fun. Some people who come to church aren't living the same story either. There are people that come here every week and they kind of slip in and slip out. They don't really engage. They don't really get to know anyone. Nobody really gets to know them. They, they may serve, but they usually don't. It's, it's kind of about them. If they want to come, they do. If they want to engage, they do. If they want to give or serve, they'll do it if they feel like it. They're kind of wandering around the set of the movie, but they don't know what the story is. And those folks don't make good partners for the journey either. The people that I know in this room who are really growing and who are really changing and being transformed into the image of Christ are people who have intentionally made a decision that I am going to pursue community and intimacy with other people. Or when they've been invited into that, they've been like, yeah, (laughs) I don't even know what that means, but I'm going to go for it, and I'm going to try to make relationships work. I see the value in that. And, and it's not just any people, but it's, it's, it's people who um, are living the same story, right? The people that are really growing in here are people who are in with groups of people who they all understand the story they're in. 
that there's a battle going on, that, that they have a glory that's needed and, and needs to be shared with those around them, and that they're partnering with God to save many lives. <clears throat> the last few years, probably about five or six years now, I've been taking a, a ski trip every spring um, with about uh, five or six guys, um, and it's a great time. And we go and we ski for a couple days in Colorado and Breckenridge, and it's beautiful and it's fun. Um, but my favorite part of the time together is over dinner and then at night. Um, because what we try to do over the course of those couple, three nights that we're there is every one of us goes around and just kind of shares our kind of present story. What's going on in our life? The battles that we're engaged in in our marriage, in parenting, in our careers, in our ministry, and then kind of how we're doing in that. Where are some of our victories? Where's some places where the enemy's kind of beating us up and we're not having much success? And as we listen and, um, you know, we, we spend some time just encouraging one another and speaking into each other's lives and, and praying for each other. And it's, by, for me, it's by far the most fun part of the trip. It's worth the money and the time because it's so rich and meaningful. And this year when I got home, uh, one of the guys that goes is Bill Burr who comes here and I was just like, man, Bill, I need to do that more often. Like I can't just do that once a year. And so we got a group of guys together here the last couple of months. We've been meeting and, and uh, just trying to dig into the battle together. And I know that I need that so desperately because those guys are kind of like an anchor for me. You know, when the, the ship of my life is getting tossed around by the various waves or winds of whatever circumstances I'm in. These guys are kind of like keeping me together, you know, from being blown away and capsized at different times in my life. Now, let's be honest. <clears throat> getting to that place with a group of people is really hard. Really hard. And then when you think about Christ and his relationship with his disciples, man, how many times was he frustrated with them? Oh, man. I mean, they betrayed him. They disowned him. On the night that he was about to, get to, to, to be arrested, he said, hey, I need you guys to just sit over there and just pray for me. Man, I really need you to be in this with me. What do they do? They fall asleep, Right? When they're walking around and he's talking about this kingdom and, and the kind of people he's going to need, you know, they're over there arguing about who's the greatest among them, right? When he said, hey, the greatest is going to be the least, the person who serves the most. And the enemy was kind of having a field day with their flaws, right? And people are frustrating, including you and me. We're part of the problem. Right? As Rich was saying, it's always somebody else, right? No, we're, we're rough too. <laughs> I heard this quote this week that said this, living in community is like camping together. That had me right there because I hate camping. <laughs> he said, living in community is like camping together for a month in the desert without tents. And what he was trying to say is this, it's long, the elements are against us, there's no protection, and we're exposed. 
People are frustrating. They will annoy us. They will disappoint us, right? And we can only survive in community if we believe a couple of things. Put that slide up there. One, people's hearts are good. Two, we're at war. Why is it so critical to survive in creating a transforming community that we believe those two things at at their core? How would that shape the way that we engage and see community if we believe those things? I'm asking you a question. Why are those critical? Let's start with the first one. People's hearts are good. Yeah, Rob? Yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't write them off after the first mistake, <laughs> right? We'd give them a chance. Yes. What else? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. People start to good. We're in it together, right? We're not the enemy. What else? Yeah, Rob. Okay, might be not so quick to judge other people. Yeah. Another way of, of putting this, a lot of times in our church culture here, we talk about believing the best about each other. So when that person says something that kind of catches us wrong, or says something that's kind of critical or feels like a dig, if I can take a step back and be like, okay, I'll just use Justin for example, right? My right-hand man. Be like, you know, if Justin kind of comes across in the wrong way, but I know his heart is good, I know what the core Justin cares about me, like Justin wants the best for me, I know that. They might not always come across that way at times because he's got his own junk going on in his life. He might be having a bad day. Him and Sarah, you know, might have had a rough, you know, argument the night before or whatever. But if I believe at the core that his heart is good, then yeah, I'm going to be much more gracious towards Justin, right? Instead of just immediately being defensive or, hey man, you know, step off, right? (laughs) And, And you see people that are like that, man. It's like, you make one mistake or you say one thing kind of in a way and they're just like, coming out fighting, you know? It's just like, whoa, simmer down now, you know? <laughs> Dang. So it's so important to believe that people's hearts are good, okay? We're at war. Why is that so critical to understand? Yeah, Barb. Yeah, yeah. she said when we know people's stories, when we know them, we take the time to know them, then we're much more compassionate towards people. You know, when we understand that there's a battle going on and they're, maybe they're getting, they're getting it handed to them in some area of their life and they're just, they're hurt. And so they're lashing out or they're bitter or they're whatever. 
Anything else? Yeah. shooting at me he's like well it's a war what do you think you know it's hard to complain about anything when you realize that you know something's at stake and that is going to take your skin yeah good he said that it's hard to complain about anything when you when you understand the fact that you're in a battle like he said you know you can't run back to the general and be like hey they're shooting at me be like yeah that's what happens out here right yeah we don't get disillusioned so much i think yeah Yeah, I, mean, I get what you're saying. That's a very good point. He's saying that, that, that Satan is the father of lies. He's the ultimate deceiver. And so when, when you understand that that's his tactic and what he's trying to do, then it just kind of makes you a little bit more aware. So for instance, those of you who've been around me and know me very long, you understand this. Like, I'm prideful. I'm competitive. And so when Satan knows that, and, he can, and when I'm not in my right mind, he'll take that and he'll twist it, man, and he'll use those negative sides of my traits to, to frustrate other people and to make them mad and um, whatever, especially with other prideful people. <laughs> like, we clash, you know, a lot. And so we have to remember that, yeah, we're not the enemy. Like, that's not who I want to be when I'm acting like that. That's, I know that's how I come across sometimes, but that's not who I want to be. Yeah. Doing what? So being in community and doing what we're supposed to do is like if we fall asleep to that, you know, the enemy is still working. They don't yeah. there's not a ceasefire like they are still Right. Yeah. yeah, that's good. There is no ceasefire. The enemy's continuing to come. That's good. We need to move on. You guys have A plus students. Must be because school's out and now your brain's kinda like whew, taking a breather. Hey, open your Bibles to Acts chapter four. It's page 995. Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at, start at verse 32. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now we read that, and especially kind of the stuff that comes, you know, how they treated one another, how they loved one another, how they self-sacrificed for one another, that sometimes we forget, I think, the key element of that from the very beginning, the first sentence there that says, what made that all work is because they were of one heart and one mind. They understood the story. They understood that they were at war. I mean, they just saw Jesus killed on the cross, right? They understood that there was an enemy. That backdrop was very apparent to them. They understood that they had a role to play. 
that if this Christian movement was going to continue to go, that, that they were going to have to share their glory with others. So I just want to ask you this question this morning, or a series of questions, actually. Who is in your circle right now? Who's in your circle that understands the story we're talking about? That you're in a battle. Whose heart are you fighting for? Through prayer, through encouragement, through getting into the midst of the pain with them and walking alongside them? Who's fighting for your heart? It's awkward and risky to talk about deep things that really matter. And Satan would just as soon you stay quiet, stay isolated, or better yet, make an attempt at being vulnerable and entering into community with others and then get hurt by that and then decide, you know what, I'm never going to do that again. He would love for that to happen. John Eldridge talks about a moment in his, his life when that very thing happened to him. He said, we've experienced incredible disappointments in our fellowship. We have, every last one of us, hurt one another, sometimes deeply. Last year, there was a night when his wife Stacy and I laid out a vision for where we thought things should be going, our lifelong dream for redemptive community. We hoped that the company would leap to it with loud hurrahs, hooray for John and Stacy. Far from it. Their response was more on the level of blank stares. Our dream was mishandled badly. Stacy was sick to her stomach. She wanted to leave the room and throw up. I was stunned, disappointed. I felt the dive toward a total loss of heart. The following day, I could feel my heart being pulled towards resentment. Moments like that usually told the beginning of the end for most attempts at community. Seriously now, how often have you seen this sort of intimate community work? It is rare because it is hard and it is fiercely opposed. The enemy hates this sort of thing. He knows how powerful it can be for God and his kingdom, for our hearts. It is devastating to him. Most churches survive because everyone keeps a polite distance from the others. We keep our meetings short, our conversations superficial. No one is really being set free, but no one is really at odds with each other either. We have settled for safety in numbers, a comfortable, anonymous distance, an army that keeps meeting for briefings but never breaks into platoons and goes to war. We have a choice to make, don't we? Enter in and risk getting hurt or hurting others or just kind of continue going it alone. Jesus chose to surround himself with a bunch of goofballs that honestly seemed like more trouble than they were worth most of the time. But over time, because he valued community so much and he wanted to share some amazing things with these guys, he wanted to give them experiences he knew was going to be life-changing for them. He wanted to share, you know, painful and hard things with them. Is that he watched them mature and he watched them grow and they became better community for him over time. 
And you know, when you're looking for people to kind of invite into your little platoon to do life with, you don't need to look for perfect people. <laughs> they're, not, they're not out there, and you're not one either. What you need to look for are people who are willing, who are eager, who are like, yeah, I, I want that. I, I know I'm probably going to mess it up and blow it and all that stuff, but I'm committed to this. I want to grow. And Jesus got to the point where after his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, he turned over the keys of the mission to these guys. And he said, hey, man, I believe in you. I've seen some growth in you. I, I know that you guys can, can do it and go love people well. As we finish up today, I, I actually want to invite a couple of my friends up. I only have two. Um, now, Dave and uh, Rich, if you guys could go ahead and make your way up here. Um, these are uh, guys that a lot of you all know. Um, they both help start our church. I got these small chairs so I would look more powerful compared to you. There you go. Um, but these are guys that, that we've walked through some stuff together the last few years. And I think we've all learned a lot about what community is, what it means to live in the kind of community we're talking about. And so I've asked them to come and just share a little bit about what they've learned uh, over the course of their lifetime. A lot of them, they've been in ministry for a long time and um, stuff. So, Rich, you can go ahead and get going first. All right. Um, had all kinds of thoughts go through my mind with this, but um, I teach history. And so the first thing that comes to my mind is something historical. So, sorry for those of you that are like, ah, not more history. But the first thing it makes me think about is... Um, just the, the um, how battle brings people together. And um, I think of uh, Sarajevo, which is in Bosnia, and they had all kinds of problems there for years. And, and people have gone through these ethnic just battles. And, um, and as a result... Uh, Bosnia is kind of, or um, Sarajevo has kind of become this place in Europe to go, to go visit. And it's because when they've gone back and talked to the people that have lived through this hard time, it's kind of eerie because the people are like, we kind of wish we were having a harder time. And I'm like, Really? And it was because it drew them together through these hard times that they went through. It drew them all back together, and they had to depend upon each other. And so um, I think what, what um, I've learned is that um, going through really difficult things together, is it, it kind of reveals our need for each other. And that we can't do it on our own, and that it's okay to say, I can't do it on my own. And it also does so much for me and the other guys just to be able to say that um, I struggle with this. And, um, and, you know, when you leave that time, you know, because we're all kind of wired to, like Bob's talked about, to be independent, and kind of the American dream is just like, we can do this on our own. And we want to do it on our own. But, you know, when 
I leave those times of spending time with guys and just, you know, whether it's revealing something I'm struggling with or, or helping someone else pray through something that they're really battling in their own life, you leave there and you're like, wow, that's, that's where I like to be. And um, so anyway, those are, those are the things that I've learned and there's a whole lot more. I could share, but um, I'll let Dave go. I'm a little intimidated. You've got notes. I don't have any notes. I didn't even use them. And you're talking about Sarajevo. I'm not even sure where that is. <laughs> but, um, yeah. You know, I think being in community has um, it's just been huge for me. It really has been. When you ask the question about who's fighting for your heart, I mean, I, I can name some guys that are fighting for my heart and um, some guys whose hearts I'm, I'm fighting for. And that's been huge in my life, following Christ. Um, you know, a couple things, I think, just that idea of the whole sermon series about lies that we believe, that I think the enemy desperately wants us to be isolated. Um, and I think one thing that's really key about that idea of being together in community is just that piece of confession you know, um, James, in James it talks about that we are to confess our sins to one another uh, and, and to pray for one another, and that's the beginning of healing because I think that when we confess our sins to God, that's, we get this forgiveness, but when we confess our sins to one another, we, we really begin to get that healing. It brings the sin to light. Satan, the enemy, wants us to keep that sin in darkness so that nobody else knows it. Um, so that we can, when we confess to one another, it brings it to light. So I really think a key part of that community, um, that living life together, fighting for each other's hearts, uh, needs to be um, confession, a place where we can confess what's really going on. And um, I I'm, get to be a part of uh, the group that goes skiing every year. It really is. It's, it's awesome, and the skiing is great, and it's really fun. But just that time where we can get together and really talk about what's going on in our lives, what's our current story, what's happening, a time when we can encourage each other, pray for each other, and a time when we can ask each other maybe some hard questions. Hey, I want you to talk a little more about this. Or you said this. This was a little bit of a concern. Or you said the same thing last year. How are we going to move past this? Those have been just so valuable to me and just so great. And um, I'm, I'm grateful that we have a p- pastor that models this in our in, yeah, for us in our church, um, Bob lives in community. He lives in relationships like that that are real and authentic where we can fight for each other's hearts. And he knows there's some guys that he can call at any time and we'll be there and um, talk and pray. And, and um, this has been a great piece of my walk with God. So, yeah. As we close, I just want to give you a real tangible example of how this played out for me a couple weeks ago. And it's kind of funny because, you know, and Scripture says, you know, don't be surprised. Like, when you experience trials and tests um, because the enemy's out to get you. And so we're in the middle of this, you know, spiritual warfare sermon series. And I'm thinking, why am I so discouraged, you know? 
And why is this so hard? And I remember just a couple weeks ago, we were at our Wednesday night group with those guys, and as the, it was coming to a close, I was just like, the Holy Spirit was just like, man, you need to just share some stuff. And I was just like, guys, I'm, I'm hurting. Like, I need your prayer. I seriously was like, I really don't want to give another sermon ever again. <laughs> I'm like, I'm so done with that and just tired, and um, I just need prayer. And so they just prayed for me. And it was just so interesting. I just want to share with you just what God did. So I'm on my way home. It's probably like 10, 20. I get a text from a, a friend of mine, a former Young Life kid. And he's like, hey, you want to get together for breakfast tomorrow morning? I'm like, yeah. And I mean, God knows that that's, I love getting together with this guy. And because he's just hungry and he's asking questions and he wants to know God. And like, I've come alive in those kinds of settings. So that was awesome. And then later that morning, right after that meeting, I got this text from Barbara Ritson. And this is what she texted me. I was praying for you today, and God told me to encourage you. He told me to tell you he is working on your behalf, and he knows your concerns, and things are changing. I mean, she didn't know anything about what was going on in my life at the time. So, anyways, props to Barb. Props to God, right, for knowing when we put ourselves into community, guys, here's the thing is that, you know, God's got so many different vessels in which he can use to encourage us. If I'm by myself, he's kind of like, man, I'd love to do something, but you don't have anybody around you I could speak encouragement through or pray for you through or what, pick you up and help you because you've isolated yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your model of community, Lord, just that Jesus came and he didn't 